Mike is in place. And we are uh, in Romans chapter 6, as we have been now for three weeks or so. And uh, Lord willing, we'll finish Romans 6 today. Uh, Last week, we were looking... uh, we, were looking, we looked at verses 12 through about verse 16, so I'd like to pick it up there today and go down through the end of the chapter. Uh, so let's just read beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll do our review and go on from there. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit did you deri- were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so as I said last week, we looked at verses 12 through about verse 16. What do you remember we talked about last week? I can be as quiet as long as you can be quiet. Okay, there are three imperatives and a promise. And what are those three imperatives? Okay. Okay. Okay, that's right. And the promise is? Okay, Why? Because we're under grace, we're not under the law. Okay, so those are his three imperatives and the promise that he gives us, or the assurance that he gives us uh, in those verses. What else? Uh, 
what are the what are the two implications uh, two implications in the statement do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies Okay. Okay, great. It, the two things that are pretty clear from what from Paul's statement there is just, you know, this is this is something that can happen in the life of the believer. The believer can live in a situation in which sin is reigning in his body, and of course the other implication is it doesn't have to be that way. Okay? And uh and that's kind of his argument all the way through Romans chapter 6. What else did we learn last week? What are the two alternatives that are open to the believer? And I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 16. Okay, okay. So you can be, uh, and uh, in my translation here, it says you can be a slave uh, of, uh, of sin or you can be a, a slave uh, of righteousness or obedience. Okay, so we have these two alternatives of slavery. So uh, remember, we had a little diagram up here on the board uh, and uh, we were thinking about or talking about why are there these two alternatives? You know, there's a lot of discussion and talk in Scripture about freedom. And so why doesn't God or Paul here, why doesn't he talk about us being free? Why does he talk about us being either a slave to obedience or a slave to sin? Why can't we just be free? Why do we have to be slaves? Because if we have the ultimate Okay, okay, great. We had our little diagram up here and we had sin and we had obedience and we could be a slave to either. And But we have this idea of freedom in our culture, in our society. We have this idea of freedom as being autonomy, being independence, okay? And... And what we discover is that when we are when we when we are autonomous or independent of God, we are actually in sin. Okay, so so if we put slavery here and slavery over here and freedom in the middle, what we find out about freedom is freedom is really slavery to sin. Okay, so we have our choice: we can be a slave of obedience, or we can be a slave of sin. But there is no such thing as true. Autonomy from from both of those things. We have to choose one or the other. What else did we learn? Anything? Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And then Paul asks this question in verse 15, which is very similar to the question he asked in verse 1, where he says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And what's his response to that? Okay, okay. Never let it happen, he says. 
you know, may it may it never be, or God forbid, it's translated in different ways. Uh, the idea is just simply absolutely not. We don't. Uh, the the idea of being under grace is not an excuse to sin, and that's the point that Paul is going to pick up again now and continue on with. Uh, he he made the remark in verse 16 about you can be in response to that question. Uh, the 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 uh, thing we were just talking about is that we can be a slave of one or the other. Uh, and so it's so uh, if you are under grace and not under the law, then then obviously you don't want to make a decision to continue to live as if you were in sin, were under the law or were under the dominion of sin. But then then in verse 17, Paul remarks about his uh, understanding of the Roman believers to whom he's writing, or these people in Rome to whom he's writing. And he says about them, he says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And so, what's clear in all this talk that we've been, we've been having about in Romans 6 about this whole idea of Slavery to sin or slavery to God or dead to sin or alive to God. Uh, uh, this whole idea is all within the context of him writing to believers. Okay. So he's writing to Christians. And it can get a little confusing because, because in many ways as he's talking, he's ta- he talks about where we were before we were saved, that we were slaves of sin. And now that we're saved, we're no longer slaves of sin. So that's what he says in verse 18. He says, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So, so in one, on one level in Romans 6, he's talking about before Christ and after Christ in our lives. Okay, But at the same time, he's talking about a choice that you and I can make now that we are believers. And so he says to the Romans here, he says, listen, I'm really glad I know this about you. I know, he says in verse 17 there, uh, that you uh, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Uh, And and then you were freed from sin and became slaves of righteousness. So he says, I know this about you guys. So everything that he says about choosing between sin and obedience or choosing between sin and God, he's really writing to believers. And you could think, well, he's writing to unbelievers and, you know, and he's saying, well, you need to, you know, you need to forsake your sin and get saved. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking to people who are believers. He's reminding them that, in fact, in the past, in their experience, they have made that choice. And they had made that decision. And so now they are not under law, but they're under grace. But now as believers, they need to continue to make that same choice they made before. Right. So that's the context that he's talking about. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 17. He says that though you were slaves, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And there's several things here we need to think about. Referring back to the conversion, their conversion experience, if you want to call it, uh, of these Roman believers, he says, uh, first of all, he says they became obedient from the heart. 
And then he says they became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. Okay, and that's a significant term that he uses there, and we'll explore that in a minute. And then he uses the phrase, to which you were committed. All three of those phrases are significant, have, uh, have some loaded meaning in them. So we want to uh, uh, explore that a little bit. First of all, he says you were obedient from the heart. The one thing that is true about every man and woman who comes to Christ is that when they come to Christ, they come as ones who are obedient from the heart. Now, if you think back on your own on your own conversion, when you were really converted, when you came to Christ, if you can remember that back far and far back in ancient history, uh, when you came to Christ, you know there may have been a real tug of war, a real struggle that went on just prior prior to your coming to Christ, right? And you're you know, and, and there's the claims of Christ on your life, and you're considering those. But, but you're still thinking about your sin and how you like your sin and there's all that kind of conflict going on. But when you finally come to Christ, when you finally make that choice, and however, however your conversion experience went, whether it was you know by your bed at home or sitting in your living room or walking out in the trees or walking down the aisle in a Baptist revival or wherever it was, the one thing that is characteristic of all men and women when they come to Christ is they do it gladly from the heart. That's his characteristic. Now, you know, of course, I know that, uh, that C.S. Lewis talks about how he was dragged kicking and screaming, screaming into the kingdom. Uh, but, what, but, but what he's talking about there is that conflict that goes on. But when we finally make that commitment to Christ, we do it, as Paul says here, we obey from the heart. It's something we really want to do. You know, I really want to give myself to Christ. It's what we call lordship evangelism. You cannot come to Christ conditionally. You cannot come to Christ under contract. You know, you do this, God, and I'll do this, but I won't do the other. I'm not going to do this. So, so when you come to Christ, you don't come to Christ saying, well, God, I'm not going to give you this, and I'm not going to give you that, and I'm not going to give you this, but you can have this, this, and this. You don't do that. Now, that doesn't mean when a person comes to Christ that they understand and are fully committed to all that God is eventually going to require of them. Thankfully, when I came to Christ, and that was when I was a little, you know, crumb cruncher, but when I came to Christ and when you came to Christ, thankfully, we didn't know at that point what all it was going to cost us, right? And if we had, maybe we would have been a little more reticent, okay? So, thankfully, God doesn't show us everything. But of the things we know that He requires when we come to Christ, at that point when we came to Christ, of the things we knew He required, there was a gladness to obey. That's just, that's the way people get saved, okay? That's, and Paul knows that about the Romans, okay? He knows that when they came to Christ, they came to God obedient from the heart. There was not a reluctance or a resistance to God when they finally made that commitment. Okay? Then he says, well, to what were they obedient? Well, he says they were obedient to that form of teaching. Okay? And the word there that's, used, that's translated in my Bible as form has, it kind of carries with it this idea of this body of truth. Or we might say, uh, if we want to use a high church term, a catechism. Okay? It's a body of truth or a catechism uh, uh, that... That the church, the the people of God, 
made sure that everybody who came to Christ understood. You know. We have something like that here at Trinity. It doesn't necessarily have to do with when a person is saved, but when somebody comes and they, wants to, they want to join the church here at Trinity, we have them go through the, the uh, Discovering Trinity classes, right? It's about six weeks of classes that they go through to find out what Trinity is all about and what their opportunities of ministry are and what we believe as a church and, and what are the things that when they come to Trinity that they're committing themselves to. When, when they join the church, okay? So it's a, it's a body of truth and a body of information that we give to new members when they come to the church. Well, typically in the New Testament era, when someone came to Christ, they were given this body of information, this form of teaching, this catechism, if you will, this, this system of teaching of the basic information that they needed to have as new believers, that's why Paul could say earlier in the chapter when he did, well, he could say, listen, you know, when you got baptized, you knew this is what it meant. The reason Paul knew they knew that is because he knew that all believers got this information. You know, it's kind of like, you know, of course, I didn't actually have one, but it's kind of like they had a pamphlet that they hand out to every new believer and says, this is it. This is the basic stuff you got to know. Okay. So the point that Paul's making here is there is some there is a body of truth. That you, when you were saved, you knew you were committing yourself, or you were being committed to. Excuse me, I need to phrase that carefully here, and I'll show you why in a minute. But there's a body of truth that you were being committed to, and you did it from the heart. So when you came to Christ, maybe one of the first things that happened when you came to Christ, some people this is true, maybe one of the first things that happened when you came to Christ is you were given a Bible. Okay, well, that's kind of overload <laughs> because it's going to take you a lifetime to figure out what all that's about. Okay, but that's your catechism. If that's what was given to you, that's your catechism. That's your form of teaching. And when somebody handed you the Bible, you hadn't opened it and read all the things that God required yet. But somebody gave you that Bible and you were a new Christian and your heart said, I want to do that. I want to live by the Bible. Okay, that's. That's what Paul's talking about. That heartfelt desire just to do what God says. Okay? Well, he says, then he says that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, what's interesting uh, about that is that's in the passive voice. Okay? So, if something's in the passive voice, what does that mean? Okay, if something happens to you rather than something you do. When typically, when I read this verse, I go, oh, it's something that I committed myself to. But that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that they committed themselves to this teaching, but rather that when they were converted, when they were led to Christ and they were catechized, uh, that, that is that they were taught in these basic things of the truth, that whoever did that, who led them to Christ and catechized them or instructed them was turning them over or handing them over to this truth. So that when, to use our example from a few moments ago, when you were saved and somebody handed you that Bible, what they were really doing is they were turning you over to the Bible. And they were, it is their hope and their desire that, the, that this body of truth, the Scriptures that they had just placed in your hands would transform your life, would rule in your life. You were being 
committed over, or shall we say, enslaved to this body of truth. That's what happened when you were saved. When you were saved from the heart, you obeyed that body of truth to which you were enslaved when someone gave that truth to you. And Paul knows this about the Romans. So I know this is true about you. And so I know that though you were slaves of sin, he says in verse 18, though you were slaves of sin, you have now been freed from sin and become slaves of righteousness. That's what happened when we were converted. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking... You know, that, that every believer goes through that. Every new believer, when they come to Christ, this is descriptive of the new believer. So the question is, what happened? What happened? Because invariably, in the life of the new believer, they come to Christ, they're all excited about coming to Christ, they're excited about this conversion experience, They've been given a body of truth and from the heart, they gladly assent to it. Is this what I want to do? I want to, I want to obey God now. I want to live for God now. I want, to, I want to read my Bible and I want to learn what it says and I want to do what it says. That's, that's what we're like when we first get saved. But it doesn't take long, does it? Maybe only a few hours. Sometimes a few days or maybe a few weeks, and then we discover that we can still choose to sin. Alright? Do you remember that what remember what that was like in your experience after you were saved? When you when after that first euphoria of your salvation experience, you suddenly realized, oh, I can still live the old way. Remember the disorientation and confusion that that causes in your life? You know, and, and that's the issue that Paul is dealing with. What he's doing here with the Romans is he's taking them back and causing them to remember what it was like when they were first saved. And he wants them then, and this is what he goes on to say, he wants them then to get in the habit of every day in their daily life making a choice to present themselves to God as instruments of righteousness, as he said in the verses we looked at last week. Like they did when they were first saved. Yeah. For, for how many of us have we in, in the period of time since our conversion, have we become cynical about this whole Christian life thing? You know, we probably wouldn't like to have somebody use that word about it, but we get to a point where we just kind of go, well, you know, that was just kind of, you know, that, that first euphoria and that first, that first enthusiasm and that first heartfelt obedience, that was just kind of, you know, that was just kind of, you know, in my immaturity. But now that I'm, now that I've, you know, been around a while and, you know, now I realize, you know, the Christian life really isn't like that. 
and really, you know, sin's a much more present dominant thing in my life than I ever would have admitted. I think that's where because you have been a Christian for so long and you really haven't grown, that's where the uh, you have grown complacent. And, uh, yeah. extremely comfortable doing what you're doing even though you were a Christian. Yeah. And, and as I thought about that, I was, that I, I was thinking about the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? And the Lord talks about the farmer. He goes out and he sows the seed and some falls on the, you know, beside the way path, the path, uh, the way path and, and that's hard ground and the birds come and they take it and some falls on weedy, weedy soil and some falls on the rocky soil and some falls on the good soil, you know, and and of course the Lord has certain things in mind when He's talking about that. But whenever I read that parable, I always, and you probably do too, I always ask the question, "What kind of soil is my heart?" Yeah. And the problem is that many of us have gone from being good soil to being stony soil or weedy soil. You know, where the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches have cropped up in our lives and they're choking out the Word of God. And there's no longer that heartfelt obedience to that form of teaching that we were committed to. And Paul wants us to remember the way it was and remember that that's not the exception, but the rule. That that's not just the way those first few days or weeks or months of your Christian life are supposed to be, but that's the way our whole life as a a Christian is supposed to be. So, So, he goes on then and he says in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He's writing here to believers, right? That's what he just said in the verses just before that. He's writing to believers. And to these believers, he says, you remember how before you were saved and you presented yourselves as slaves, you presented your members. And remember, we talked last week about what our members are. That's our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth and our gifts and our intelligence and our, and our passions and everything about us. Everything that makes us, makes, 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 makes up us. Is that how you say it? Makes up us. Everything that makes us up. That we present those as instruments of righteousness before we presented them as instruments of sin. So what I used my intelligence for and what I used my gifts for and what I used my hands for and my eyes for and my ears for, all those things, what I used them for was for doing unrighteousness. But now as a believer, I am called to make a presentation to God on an hour by hour, day by day basis. I am called to make a presentation to God of these members to him to be used as instruments of righteousness. So, God, today, when I leave church here and I go home, how can I use these members? To serve the purposes, your purposes of accomplishing righteous works with my friends, with my neighbors, with my family, 
at work, in my leisure, when I'm watching the Super Bowl tonight. You know, how can I use my members as works of righteousness? Here they are, God. They're available to you. That's what he tells us to do in verse 19. Now, I want you to notice something else about verse 19 that's really important. And that is that this slavery thing is dynamic. It's not static, as John Stott says. Okay. It's dynamic. It's not static. In other words, you'll notice in verse 19, he says, when you were doing this, when you were presenting your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, what happened? Resulted in further lawlessness. Okay. So when I present myself to sin, you know, oftentimes I think, okay, you know, I can do this. This is safe. I, I can get away with this. But what I find out is when I step over here and I do this, is that I get sucked a little further along, right? It's easier to slide further and further down the stairs. Yeah. It's what we call the slippery slope, right? And that's what sin is. It's a slippery slope. And I think I can just step just a little bit here. Do I have time to tell this little funny story? When, when, uh, when, I, was a, when I was a young fellow, this is about the time I got out of high school or whatever, and, and we lived in Colorado Springs. And, uh, and uh, out on the west, southwest corner of Colorado Springs is a big, huge city park called North Cheyenne Canyon. And it's a, you know, it's a big canyon and, you know, what the mountains are like out there. And it's got this stream that comes down through it. And there are a couple of tributaries that come down in the stream. And if you, if you, if you go up to the, to the end of the park and, and follow one of the trails out of the park and you get over to this other waterfall called Silver Cascades Falls, I think it's called. Might be St. Mary's Falls. I forget. But anyway, it's this really cool waterfall. Probably told this story before because I'm always telling it. But, but it's probably 100, 150 feet tall. Okay. But it's one of those, it's not a straight waterfall. It's one of those kind of, you know, sloping waterfalls. And so it comes over the top of this huge rock face. It's about 150 feet tall. And the water just comes and cascades down. And then it hits this ledge about halfway down. Okay. And there's this ledge that runs all the way across this rock face. And the water comes down and hits that ledge. And over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, it has washed out a basin there. So the water comes down and it hits that basin and then it shoots up in there and then goes on down the rest of the way. Okay? And there's this ledge and it's, oh, I don't know, maybe three, four feet wide. And you can walk out there and stand there right by this basin. And, you know, and if you can get across it, you can walk on over to the other side. Okay? Well, we had this dog who was like a cat. He had nine lives. I, saw, I personally watched him get run over by a car twice and survive. We ran over him once ourselves, you know, so he had like nine lives, okay? And he's this little cross between a beagle and a cocker spaniel, okay? So he's really a strange-looking creature. creature. And, uh, but at any rate, he, he went everywhere with us and did everything with us. And so my brother and I, oldest brother and I, were out one day climbing up there in North Shankane. We went over to St. Mary's Falls and we were, and, and we were climbing up. And, and Butch, the name of our dog, he was off doing his thing, you know? Well, he had, he had walked up to the top of the falls and walked across the top of the falls. But, of course, what Butch didn't know, which I did know, is that that water's been going over those falls for a long time, which means it's mossy. 
So it's very slick. So when you cross the top, you have to be very careful. Okay. Well, Butch was not careful. And so my brother and I were standing there by that basin halfway down. And I looked up. And here comes Butch like a flying squirrel (laughs) through the middle of the air, you know. He stepped on that moss and that water just swept his feet out from under him. And he went shooting off through the air. Fortunately, he landed in that basin of water. It's only about this deep. He landed in that basin of water, got up, shook himself off, and walked off the ledge. (laughs) Okay? Well, that's what sin's like, folks. It's like that moss at the top of that waterfall. And you think you can get across. And before you know it, you're going over. You know, somebody has said, uh, and I don't know who said this, but it's, but it uh, is uh, so true. Somebody had said one time that sin will take you further than you want to go and it will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't that your experience? It's my experience. You see, slavery to sin is not static. It is dynamic. We don't just do one thing and then that's it. But it sucks us in and it takes us further than we want to go and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. And and in contrast to that then, Paul says in verse 19, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness Resulting in what? Sanctification. Being a slave to righteousness is also not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. What that means is that as I make a choice to present my members to obedience, to be a slave of righteousness, as I make that choice to do that, it activates a process in my life. So when I choose to obey and follow God and and I make this step, this initial step of commitment to obey and follow God on any given day, it has it has the effect of leading me in the process of sanctification. And as this process of sanctification goes on, I get more and more like Christ. And ultimately, at the end of sanctification, he tells us in this passage, is eternal life. It's not to say that we're saved by sanctification, but this sanctification process is leading us on in this experience of eternal life. So it's a dynamic thing. And we get to choose which dynamic we live under. Do we live under the dynamic of sin, which results in further lawlessness and further impurity? And greater death? Or do we get to live, do we choose to live under the dynamic of obedience which results in greater and greater righteousness and greater and greater sanctification? Ultimately, realizing its full realization in eternal life. Now, Paul has brought up this subject here in verse 19 of this idea of what is the result of my choice to live in sin? Or what is the result of my choice to live in righteousness? 
And so really what he's talking about then in these last four verses, verses 20 through 23, is the idea of the consequences or results or outcome of the choices we make. Okay? So he says in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So, he's going to paint a contrast for us here. He's going to paint first a picture of what it's like when we're slaves of sin. And, and remember, he's talking to believers. But to help believers understand what it's like if they, in their daily life, choose to live as slaves to sin, he takes them back and reminds them of what it was like when they were really enslaved to sin back before they were saved. Okay. And so he paints this picture. This is where sin leads you. This is what sin results in. Remember before you were saved? That's what happens when you today, as a believer, choose to live in sin. So he paints that picture. And then he goes over here and he paints in verse 22 the picture of what it's like when a person chooses to live in obedience. And then he sums it up in that great gospel verse, which isn't really a gospel verse. It's a verse to believers of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was written to believers, not to unsaved people. You know, we use it all the time when we share the gospel, and that's fine, it's good, because Paul's just using, been using the whole before we were saved thing as a picture. So that's fine, we can use it in the gospel, but let's remember that Romans 6.23 wasn't written to unbelievers, it was written to us as believers so that we would make the right decisions on a day-by-day basis as to how we're going to live. But I get ahead of myself, okay? So going back to verse 20, he says... Uh, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, of course, he does not mean there that we weren't obligated to do good. Clearly, we were under the law and the law demands righteousness, right? So he's not saying that that before we were saved, there was no demand of righteousness. What he means is we we were not under the dispensation or the administration of righteousness. We were under the administration of the law and sin and death. We were not under the administration of the law of of righteousness. Okay. But really, by this time, Paul has moved on. And what he's really thinking about chiefly, and you'll see this in the next verse, what he really has in mind here, that when you were free from righteousness, is really you were free from the benefits of righteousness. When you were a slave of sin you were free from the goodies that righteousness provides. Okay? And that's clearly what he's talking about. Look at the next verse. He says, therefore, because you were free from righteousness, therefore, he says, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Now, need to remember at this point that Paul, of course, when he wrote this, presumably, uh, unless he writes like some of us, 
he put in all his punctuation marks, okay? But when the scribes, the guys who were responsible for making the copies, you know, the old version of the Xerox machine, you know, the guys that were responsible for making the copies of the New Testament letters and scriptures and Old Testament too, okay? Now, they were writing on a material that was very expensive, you know, they're writing on this parchment stuff and it was really costly to produce this stuff, okay? So they needed to economize. Now, if we'd only done this in English class, it would have been much easier if we'd been more concerned about saving paper. But my teachers always wanted me to put in the punctuation marks. But what, what, what these scribes did, as they, and what you have, you have a room full of scribes that all have a desk and they're all copying and some guy standing up front reading the original text, okay? And then everybody else is writing. But they get to leave out the punctuation marks, okay? Because they're trying to save parchment. Okay. So, uh, so they leave out all the punctuation marks and all the capitalization. Okay. They leave all that out. So if you look at these ancient manuscripts, it's just one you know, New Testament manuscripts, just one Greek letter right after another, just ad infinitum. You know, just line breaks is all there are. Okay. And you have to figure out where the sentences start and where they stop and which ones are questions and which ones aren't and where the commas go and where the quotations. You have to figure all that out. And usually it's fairly easy to do from the context. You can figure it out. But there are places where we're just not sure where the punctuation goes. And this is one of those places. Okay? We're just not exactly sure in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 21, exactly where the punctuation goes. Really, when all is said and done, it doesn't make a world of difference. It, there is a slight different emphasis depending on where you put the punctuation mark. But the question is, it is a question, but the question is, where does the question mark go? Okay. And the question is, therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. And and because it's the job of the interpreter to figure out where the punctuation goes and not the job so much of the translator. In other words, the translator does put into punctuation, but really when he's doing it, he's doing it not by the science of translation, but by the science of interpretation, if you will. He's going, well, this is you know, within the context. This looks like where the punctuation should go. And so in my Bible, the translators, and I think in most of your English Bibles, you'll notice that the question mark comes after the word ashamed, right? But some commentators believe that the question mark should come after, after it says, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving? So after the word deriving, the idea is, what benefit did you get? And the word that's translated in my Bible here, benefit, is translated many other places as the word fruit. It is the word fruit. That's the idea of the fruit that comes from something. Okay? And in almost all cases, when Paul uses this word fruit in the New Testament, perhaps in all of his cases, I'm not sure, but certainly in most of them, when he uses the word fruit, he uses it in a positive sense. So even, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, where he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Remember there at the end of Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't talk about the fruit of the flesh. He talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He always uses fruit in a positive sense. Okay? So, so it's possible here that what he's saying here is, what positive thing did you get? Question mark then the answer is just an understood answer. The answer is nothing. And then he goes on to say what you really got was not a benefit or a fruit. What you got was shame and death. Okay. So that's one way to punctuate the verse. 
The other is the way you see it punctuated here, which is, well, what were, what, what were your benefits <laughs> that you got from the things of which you, were, which you are now ashamed? Because those things result in death. So ultimately, it's just a little bit different emphasis, but ultimately the question still remains, or the point still remains, that when you live in a slave, as a slave to sin, what was the, what was the result? Death and shame. Shame and death. You know, it's that, it's that adage again, you know. Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and makes you pay more than you want to pay. Right? And what you find out about sin is that always, ultimately, it results in shame and death. Do you remember those things you engaged in before you were saved? That you were so reluctant to give up for eternal life? What do you think about that stuff now? You're ashamed of it, aren't you? It's always the result of sin. Yeah. Uh, I, actually, that's a very good question, and I think it's both. I think, uh, and most commentators agree, ultimately he's talking about spiritual death. Okay, And, of course, he's connecting it with the death that everyone who's a sinner encounters. Okay, In other words, eternal separation. Okay, But because of the way he's couching it here in this context, I think he's also including this broader sense of the separation that occurs in our life, the grief and the death and the sorrow that occurs in our life on a daily basis when we sin. Okay? So that the belief, so the unbeliever, he experiences not only death at the end, but he experiences on a daily basis in his life, he experiences death, which is, remember, in the New Testament or in the Scriptures as a whole, isn't so much the idea of, you know, laying in the casket, it's the idea of separation. We get that in Genesis chapter 2. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And we know they didn't die physically, but they were at that point separated from God. So to answer your question, I think that it, that it has the connotation or the sense of all these negative consequences that come in our life as a result of sin. Does that answer your question? Okay. Uh, and that's a good question. I, I did want to address that. So thanks for asking it. Yeah. Yeah, Rick, it's interesting you were talking about the punctuation, but uh, I'm talking a huge inversion in today. And it's almost like the person who did this is hedging. Because in verse 21 says, What fruit has, they, has he been to know things whereof ye now change? Question mark. But then it's but then it says, For the end, those things is death. For the end of those is death. The F in 4 is a small 4. Yeah. Or a small F. Okay. So it's like they're hedging. Yeah. Not really starting. Yeah, and, and actually, I think the New Americans doing the same thing, kind of hedging a little bit the way they do it. But that's fine. That's fine because it's a little bit of a question. Okay. Just the other day, uh, a couple of days ago, I read a story about a, a, a woman. She's now middle-aged. But at the time, she was a young woman. She was a young Southern woman, Southern Baptist, probably a believer at the time that this happened. And uh, she, she'd grown up. She was a pretty good girl. And then she went to college. And while she was at college, she said, this is an interview in a magazine, uh, 
while she was at college, she began to make some compromising choices. She began to do the kind of thing we're talking about here in Romans chapter 6. She began to present herself as an instrument of unrighteousness. And so, first it began with, you know, when she was in high school and stuff, she would only date Christian guys and that sort of thing. That can be kind of risky. But, but, but when she got to college, she found out she could get away with dating non-Christian guys. And so, she started doing that. And, and she kind of began to compromise in some areas. And then about the time she graduated from college, she was date raped by a non-Christian guy that she was dating. And, and that kind of wiped her out spiritually and she kind of started down this downhill slope spiritually in her life. And this went on for a number of years. And her name was Donna. And, uh, and uh, over a period of time, then eventually she, uh, she kind of, I don't know how this happened, but she began to kind of uh, make connection with and mix with people that are kind of high-powered and highfalutin. And eventually she ended up... Uh, uh, and being introduced to this really powerful, influential, famous person here in America. And uh, and she went out on a boat with him. And, you know, I don't know what all happened. She didn't go into the story on, uh, on in, in, in the interview. But then but then eventually uh, she knew she was she knew she was doing wrong. She knew this wasn't right. Uh, and then eventually this guy asked her to come up to Washington, D.C. and see him. And by this time, God was really convicting her that she was making the wrong choices. But she, she said to God, she says, well, after, I'll just go see him this one more time. So she got on a plane and flew to Washington, D.C. And, and uh, <clears throat> what she didn't know is that this particular individual had thrown, thrown down the gauntlet to the press. And he said to the press, who had been asking him if he was immoral, had said, if you think I've been fooling around, you just follow me around. The woman's name is uh, Donna Price, right? Donna Price? Yeah, Donna Price. The man's name is Gary Hart, who at the moment was the front runner of the Democratic Party. Party for the presidential nomination in 1980, I think it was. Well, you know the story. The press following around. They took pictures of Donna going into his hotel that night, coming out the next morning. And within a couple days, her picture and her reputation was all over the world. And for the next several years, uh, Donna Rice, Donna Rice is her name. Uh, for the next several years, you know, you ever hear of her name? You know, you see this picture of her sitting on Gary Hart's lap out on that boat out off the coast of Florida. Her reputation is ruined. Anybody thinks of Donna, and probably until today, every time you thought of Donna Rice, you thought of an immoral and profligate woman, right? Well, as it turns out, that's what God used to break her. But I'm sure that she needed to hear at some point in those compromising years, she needed somebody to say to her, Donna, do not present yourself and your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But present them to God 
as instruments of righteousness. Eventually, she started to make that choice. She's married, happily married. She's got kids. She's serving the Lord. She's been engaged in the ministry for many years now, fighting pornography and uh, campaigning against pornography and the effects of pornography. And so she's turned her life around. She's made that choice. She's made that decision. But Don is a classic example of sin taking you further than you want to go and keeping you longer than you want to stay and making you pay more than you want to pay. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, folks, this is what happens when you choose to sin. But, in verse 22 he says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. So, just like sin has this effect, if I choose to go that way, if I choose righteousness, if I choose to live righteously, if I choose on a daily basis to present the members of my body to God as instruments of righteousness, if I can say to God on a daily basis, God, how today can I use my feet for the kingdom of God? God, how today can I use my hands for the kingdom of God? How today can I use my gifts and my mind and my intellect and my skills for the kingdom of God and for your glory and to love your people and to love the lost and to benefit the world and to glorify Christ? How can I do that? And if I do that and I present my members to Him, the result is the process of sanctification in my life and at the end, eternal life. And the same question applies to eternal life that applies to the question of death. Is that just pie in the sky by and by or is that here and now? And I think it's both. That when we choose to live that kind of a life, we experience a righteousness, we experience a process of sanctification in our life that causes us to experience a life that we could never have known had we not chosen to present ourselves to God. And so he sums it all up then in verse 23 when he says, For, folks, for you believers, remember this, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and so as I face this struggle, and it is a struggle, and we'll talk about it as we go on, in Romans 7. As I face this struggle with sin, one of the best verses I could remember is that verse that we always used and we share to unbelievers is Romans 6.23. As I face temptation today and tomorrow and this week, one of the best things I could do is remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin pays wages. But, he says, the free gift of God is, uh, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So, if I make myself a slave of God, I don't get any wages. Why don't I get any wages? He doesn't call them wages, does he? He uses the word charisma there, gift. It's the same word we use for gift in 1 Corinthians 12 and everywhere else. Okay? It's the idea of grace. But the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? So, he doesn't call it a wage. He calls it grace. Why is it grace? If I'm a slave of God, why is it grace? Because Jesus said, 
when you've done everything that is asked of you, still say what? I am an unworthy servant. When I have gone through my entire week and I have presented myself as an instrument of righteousness to God throughout the week, time and time and time again, and I've had a great and successful week, at the end of the week, the benefits that I get are all grace. Because everything that I did was just what was expected of me. I'm an unworthy slave. But that doesn't change the fact that even though I'm unworthy, God in His grace and His love pours out upon me life that I could never have known if that week I had chosen instead to present myself as members or present my members as instruments of unrighteousness. So today, tonight, this week, just remember, folks, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Next week, we'll go on to Romans 7.